Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. As a, an embodied response to the authority of Scripture, we stand up here while I read Scripture. So I'm going to invite everyone to go ahead and stand up. As I read from the Gospel of John, I'm going to read the first 29 verses, so follow with me. Should be on the screen as well. Where's my clicker? I don't know where my clicker is. Anyway, we'll, we'll find it somewhere. Put it somewhere. Uh, okay. Uh, for, uh, John 4. Okay, now. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although perfect, <laughs> although Jesus himself did not baptize, uh, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had, have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now, uh, and the one you now have is not your husband. What, have you, what you have said is true. Now the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem that is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming 
to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. May you revive us by your word. May the words that I speak today, Lord, be pleasing to you. May you help me to forget the things that will be unhelpful for your people and help me to remember the things that will be. All these things we pray, and and I pray this, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, Go ahead and have a seat. Now, I don't feel like I need to introduce myself here, but for those uh, catching us on the podcast or YouTube, my name's Arnaldo, lead pastor here at Anchor Southwest, and I want to welcome everyone here. We're going to be wrapping up today our little short series called Reset, and our goal was to help us to readjust to life back together as a church community. We talked about the peace of Christ being the thing that we need the most more than anything else as we reemerge into society, some of us slower than, than others. Then last week, we reimagined together what it would look like for Southwest to move from some of these false measures of success, bums, budgets, buildings, as the measure of our success towards the outworking of love being the measure of our success. Simply put, I argued that the measure of this church will be love, regardless of anything else. And today we're gonna continue this conversation as we explore what it means to live as spirit-filled missionaries to our city. I remember a few years ago, there was a book on my desk uh, at our old apartment back in Bankstown. There was a book on my desk, a bright orange book. It was called Joy to the World. And I'm working away, I forget what I was doing. This has gotta be eight, nine years ago or so. And Catherine passes by me, and we must have had a fight, because what she's about to say is pretty savage. And so, um, but I can't remember the details. But I remember sitting there, and she looks at this book, and she goes, joy to the world? How about joy for your own life, mate? It's like, savage. And I told her that I'm going to put her on blast today, and glad that she's not here to see it. But as angry as that made me in the moment to kind of be confronted with myself, better... The Proverbs say, Proverbs 27, better is the open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that day, my best friend wounded my ego deeply. But the Lord did something that day through Catherine's prophetic words that really changed the trajectory of my life. It started me on a path to kind of face my own demons. And it was a catalyst on a journey toward pursuing mental and emotional wholeness and health, a journey of deep transformation as I began to explore my interior world and the lack of joy in my own soul. I was in ministry, we had I think one kid or two on the way, it was difficult, I was still studying, but I was incredibly joyless. What I began to realize, painfully realize, was that I was trying to lead people to streams of living water without drinking myself without practicing leading myself there. I was sharing my faith with people and telling them about this joy in Christ, this new life in the kingdom. All the while, I was miserable and joyless. In a nutshell, I began to realize I can't call you, I can't call people to a place that I haven't been myself. And we've all done that. I needed to stop living out of this secondhand spirituality, this secondhand joy in the spirit, this secondhand experience of Jesus. And isn't this so often what we think about when we think about mission and evangelism? 
We call people to faith. We call people to join the church, to join mission, to join and partner with God in all he is doing to renew the world, all really beautiful language. And we do this, though, without the joy, the holiness, or the power of the Spirit. So what the world often sees is nothing that they actually want to become. There's nothing beautiful or attractive about living life according to the culture's values, the world's standards, and then kind of plastering a veneer of Christianity. Because really the only difference is what you're doing between two and four o'clock on Sundays. We handle finances the same way. We have the same goals for our lives. We raise our children to value the same things as our culture. We treat sex and our bodies in the same way as the world does. And let me ask you a question. If we find our hope, if I find my hope in the same place that my unbelieving neighbors do, who don't know or follow Jesus, what am I offering them? If I find my security in the same things that my friends who don't know Jesus, what am I giving them? What alternative kind of life am I giving them? Just another way of thinking, like what, what am I offering them? If I find my joy in the same temporal places as our unbelieving family members, what's the difference? We need more than just words to be effective carriers of God's message of saving grace to the world. They need, listen, they need to see, family, how it has changed my life, how it has changed your life. This change in our lives is one that is marked by joy, not simply duty. Now, duty, such an ugly word, right? We don't like that word, especially in uh, you know, churches that try to be a little more trendy. Duty, we don't do duty, we just do delight. Now, I can go, I can go on a diet. I deleted 800 words on this, but, but I, need to, I need to move on. I just wanna say this, that duty is a beautiful and necessary thing. We don't, we don't dump on duty, right? It, it, it's like we, we, we often say something like, and I've said this before, we don't get to, we don't have to go to church, we get to. We don't have to read scripture, we get to. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it's true, you don't have to. In the same way, you don't have to breathe, you get to, right? I don't have to eat, I get to. And sure, you don't have to, but soon you'll be dead. And so we don't dabble in just duty, we also do delight, and we have to do both. Like Ted Lasso says, he says, it's doing the wrong thing. Doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. Duty is a beautiful muscle to develop, but duty alone is not enough. We're called to be whole people, and so we dabble in both duty and delight. But listen to my man, Leslie Newbigin, when he says this about duty and delight when it comes to mission and evangelism. He says this, there has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command, Matthew 28, right? Go therefore, be my disciples, uh, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to uh, obey everything that I have commanded them. Lo, I will be with you till the end of the age, right? It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate, quote unquote. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification, and yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission and evangelism a burden rather than a joy, to make it a part of the law rather than a part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. 
the news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive, that should stop us in our tracks. The fact that the crucified, vilified Jesus, the embarrassed one on the cross, the fact that he is alive is like an explosion of joy. It does something. It's something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more, I love this, like the fallout of a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. We share so naturally what we enjoy, don't we? Sharing something we enjoy is just so incredibly, it just flows out of us. This is what C.S. Lewis says about it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, listen, it doesn't just express your joy, but it completes the enjoyment. It is, it's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he or she is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people you are with care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. Listen, how many of y'all know that I love Bell's Chicken? A few of y'all know, and it's not because I read a manual that told me how to share what I enjoy. I went, I loved it, and I told, right? How many of y'all have been with me to the basement brew house? A few of y'all, why? And if you haven't, you're missing out. Let's go, it's back open. Why? Because those burgers are banging. Like, I, no one had to tell me, no one had to pay me to tell you how great they are. How many of y'all know uh, about my new favorite cafe in Mortel, St. Kai? Like, oh, most of you know. One of you asked me, hey, where's that, that cafe that you've been talking about all the time this morning? Why? Because I enjoy it. Because the coffee is good. Because they remember my name and they spell it correctly on my cup. <laughs> That's important to me. I got stories there. We share what we love, and sharing on even on social media is a beast of its own kind. There's a whole team of technicians behind the share button on Facebook. Like there's a whole team that, that like they orchestrated the share button on Facebook. We pour so many, they poured so many resources into a share button because they get something. They get something that often we forget, that we share what we enjoy. Let, let me break it down for y'all for a moment. Let, let, let me, there, there's nothing worse than this, this situation that, that I'm about to paint. Let's imagine you're home, chilling, feet up, scrolling on IG or Facebook, and whoever you're with, whether it's your boyfriend, girlfriend, auntie, whoever is on the other sofa, and you're just hanging out, you're both you know, being uh, socially antisocial, you're both on social media at the same time, you're scrolling, and you find the funniest meme or cat video or whatever, right? Like whatever tickles your fancy. And you send it to them. You send it to them and then, and then this is you, right? This, this is you, you're just, you're waiting. You're waiting, you're looking across the room and you're just waiting. And you're like, I cannot wait until this person opens up their phone, checks their notification because they're gonna love me, they're gonna love it and I'm gonna be able to complete my joy because I've sent them something that brought me so much joy. And let me tell you, there is nothing worse 
than seeing the person look at their phone and like say nothing. I'm like, that, that's, this is the greatest thing I've ever, like this is like finding hidden treasure and you don't care? Like there's, they're either dead inside, I'm not sure what it is, but it hurts. It hurts to share something that you enjoy and not get anything back. Because sharing something that isn't just like after the enjoyment, it's part of it. And this works with anything that we share, right? Your recent trip, your grandkids' photos that, like, listen, probably only you care about, or you know, like I'm not, like I love you, but I'm not, it's gonna be an awkward situation when I say, hey, look what you know, Johnny did, and no one really cares, but you wanna be kind, and so you say that's cute, right? Like it works with anything that we love and we share, and this, it's, it's heart-wrenching when people don't enter into that joy. And that's the dynamic at play. You invited someone, you invited someone in that moment, it's a vulnerable moment, you invited someone to enter into your joy. You invited someone to respond to something that brought you delight. And their non-responsiveness or their negative response gives you nothing but heartache. And we feel that because it's our natural inclination, our natural impulse is to share what we love. And so, if we wanna create a culture where we are sharing Jesus, follow with me, then what do we need to do? Follow me. We must train ourselves in love, the love of Christ and the love of one another because as we grow in our love for Christ, our mission will be like a nuclear fallout that doesn't harm but brings life. But so often what happens in my own heart and in many of our churches is we want to speed up the process. We want to put this in a microwave and we want to speed it up. We see our churches may not be sharing the gospel or it's not as natural for us to share our faith with others. So what we do is that we go to books, we go to training, and we go to a good old-fashioned guilt trip. And two out of three of those, and I'll let you guess which ones are good, two out of three of those ain't so bad. In fact, I've read a few books on evangelism and apologetics that have been really, really, really helpful. I've even hosted a training event with one of Australia's leading apologists. Those are not bad things, but when they become not only the first, but our only resource for getting this church to share the gospel, then it's no wonder we aren't evangelizing. Books and training and Five for Five and Alpha, they're great tools for mission and evangelism, great vehicles to help us create a culture of invitation but they cannot carry the weight of what God is doing in this place. There must be an everyday livedness to mission. There must be an everyday livedness to us sharing the good news of Jesus because we share what we delight in. We share what we enjoy. And this story in the Gospel of John, the familiar story to many of us, is about this radical encounter that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman. There's so much to say about the actual story, but we're not gonna spend too much time there because I just wanna focus on the dynamic of what is happening here. John begins by noting that Jesus has to go from Judea uh, to, uh, Jesus has to go from Judea to Galilee, so from down the bottom to up the top. And you see there Samaria right in the middle. And if you look, I wonder if this works here, this spotlight, it's not working. But if you see this green, Uh, this green uh, path here, that's the normal route that Jews would take if they wanted to get from the south to the north. They would go around Samaria 
It would take much longer for a Jew to get from Judea all the way to Galilee. Why? Because they would go around. They would avoid these places like the plague. They would go like they, they would take weeks more just to avoid Samaritans. This is how deeply the hatred, the historical, the cultural, the ethnic tensions going back all the way to the Old Testament. Jews saw Samaritans as half-breeds, as mongrels. They only observed the first five books of the Old Testament. They were despised by Jews. But this time, Jesus runs straight through. Straight through. And they get to a well, as we heard. Jesus is dehydrated. His posse's in the city getting food. But there's this woman. There's this woman at the well at noon. The sixth hour, the sixth hour, they started counting hours from 6 a.m. So the first hour was seven, then eight, nine. The sixth hour, 12 p.m., high noon, this woman is getting water in the heat of the day. This was incredibly uncommon. This was not done. And the reason why she did that was because we find out about her sexual history, her marital history. And so she's avoiding all the other women. She's shamed, she's seen as dirty, she's that woman, she has a scarlet letter on her blouse. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And we need to understand, this is wild. There's no way, and you can tell by the disciples' reactions later on, but there's no way that Jesus, any respectable man, would be caught dead speaking to a woman in public. We need to, we need to like, try to enter into that culture. A man, a grown man, could not be seen speaking to a grown woman in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. Like, this is less than a dog in, their, in, their, in the Jewish worldview. Like, they are less than less than. They're worse than pagans. And Jesus strikes up this conversation. She's a half-breed. She's a she but they have this interaction and Jesus tells this woman all about her life and the way that she sought love and security through men and was married several times but had given up on marriage and was shacking up with the sixth guy at the moment. The deep shame that this woman must have felt for the ways that she was emotionally abused and sexually exploited throughout her life, man. That's deep shame. Many people see the story as Jesus sort of outing a loose woman. I don't think that's the primary purpose of what Jesus is doing here. So many times I've heard this text preached as Jesus kind of outing this loose woman. But what were the conditions that allowed this to happen? What, what kind of cultural conditions was she subject to? The lack of representation in court, the shame that she would have carried, the abusive men, we, we don't talk about that too much. We just see the, this loose woman who's been married five times and shacking up with the six. But this is not about Jesus outing this woman. This is about Jesus touching her shame, touching her brokenness, where she is most broken, where she has been most abused. She was a victim of underrepresentation. Yes, she's not, with, she's not without sin, surely, but she's a victim of underrepresentation. She was un. She, where she was able to be pushed aside time and time again, five times. This was a bruised woman. Yes, and caught in sin, sure, but a deeply bruised woman. And Jesus comes and offers her new life where he says to her, everyone, 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Imagine never being dehydrated again. Like sometimes I wish I was a nurse and I could just hook up an IV just to get hydration. Like just imagine never having to feel that way in the deepest sense of the word. And her response is this. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Do you catch the dynamic? Do you see what's happening here? She's receiving a promise of new life from Jesus, of water that will never fail her. And the first thing she thinks of doing is dropping that water, running back into the city to the place where she is shamed and proclaiming Jesus to her enemies and her neighbors. The Pharisees didn't do that, but this woman, this shamed Samaritan, this dirty woman, quote unquote, of the city, this woman chose to drop her water and go into the city where she has to face those who shame her and proclaims Jesus. They come out to see Jesus because notice, it's never us who convert people. We are just witnesses to Christ. We give our own witness and testimony and we tell the world this. And this is why stories in our gospel communities are so important because we need to be well-versed in how to narrate our stories and say this, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus, come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. We don't give the new birth, we're only midwives to the new birth, but they must come to the master himself. And peep this, this is what happens. Many Samaritans, later on in the story, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of this woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Oh, that it would be said of your life, of my life, of this church's life and experience in our communities. Oh, that it would be said that many people in the city of Sydney believed because of the testimony that we gave them about what Jesus has done in our life because of the beautiful and ordinary and extraordinary and mundane and exciting lives that we live, people met the Messiah. Because of this church's witness to the goodness and to the grace of God for decades, many people from this city of Sydney believed. And it's not because we're perfect, and it's not because the woman was perfect, but it's because God is good. Evangelism works because God is good, not because we are. And it's not because we want to be known, but we want Jesus to be known. If this church in a hundred years is forgotten, if I am forgotten, if you are forgotten, but through our ordinary lives, people came to see the beauty of Jesus, we would have lived good lives. No one is gonna bend the knee to Anchor Church or Arnaldo or you, but they will bend the knee to Jesus. Our desires that we would be faithful and that God would use our faithful witness to bring many into the kingdom. She was faithful in proclaiming all the Lord had done for her. And we need to learn to speak about what the Lord has done in us. You know, we're so, 
we're so damn quick to tell others about the shoes that we copped or the sale that we got. Did you know how much I got off on these? Did you know there's a flash sale this weekend? Right? So quick, so quick to tell each other, have you seen that new show? Why? So quick to share a video or a meme or a joke, and I don't say this to shame you, I dabble. I do this because I love you and I want us to investigate our own hearts and discover what it is exactly that brings us joy. So as we hit reset and as we recognize the pervasive peace that is ours already in Christ, as we make love the measure of all that we do here at Southwest, may we enjoy God to such a degree that the only logical response is to call others to enter into that joy. Can we do that? Can we do that? Can we enter into this together? Can we sign up for this? Can we help one another out and call each other to hell horrifying holiness? Can we all call ourselves out of the lies that we are believing and living? Because what we need to understand is that the measure that we love one another and love God, that is the measure that we will look plausible to the world, that it will look believable, that, that Jesus is real, that this is true, and this is not only true, but beautiful and good and trustworthy. And doesn't this give your life such a great purpose and expansiveness? Like, like our small dreams need to die and begin to wither in light of the reality of what God is calling you to do. Like if, if I can just grab you by your collar, like lovingly, and tell you, don't, don't you know what God has for you? Like this, this grand vision of what he wants to do in you. So my challenge this week is simply this. How are you going to cultivate the joy of Christ in your life? It's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to us to put ourselves in the position where the Spirit can work in our hearts and our imaginations. You know, one thing I often hear is this. Man, as a pastor, man, I am in a bit of a funk. I don't, you know... I don't really feel like I'm growing. I'm, I'm feeling spiritually sluggish. I feel distant from God. And while it's not my first question, I do eventually get to the place where I'm, I'm asking, how are you enjoying communion with Jesus? Not are you reading your Bible. Are you enjoying communing with Jesus through Scripture? Are you enjoying communing with other believers as you get together and ruminate on your salvation? And more often than not, they can't remember the last time they read their Bible or prayed. And while it's not a magic pill, our consistent inconsistencies in our devotional life produce the results that we struggle against. Our hands, rather than clasped in prayer, hug our PS4 controllers. Our imaginations, rather than being soaked in scripture, are shaped by TikTok. Again, I dabble. But then we wonder, Y'all know me. You know I love a good, like, there's another meme coming. Like, don't worry. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I get it. But are our imaginations more fixed to consuming entertainment than scripture, than community, than prayer? And we wonder why we feel dry or not excited by Jesus. And I can guilt you and say, you need to be sharing the gospel. You need to be inviting your friends. You need to be sharing Jesus. 
I don't want to do that. I want to say, how can I help you enjoy Jesus? We wonder why we feel dry. It's like this. It's a, it's a little bit like this. Um, you know, <laughs> why am I so tired? We go all the time. You eat nothing of nutritional value. You have a crazy irregular sleep schedule. You never exercise. It's like, I don't get it. I don't get why I feel distant from God. I don't get why I don't feel like I'm attracted to spending time with God in the scriptures. I, I just don't get it. Why do I feel this way? I, I, got, a, I got a theory. It's only funny because it's true. We're selling ourselves short and we cut ourselves off of the ways that God has chosen to nourish our souls and our bodies and our joy. Our joy in Jesus is fueled by abiding in him, not by doing this on a Sunday for one hour a week. And so, and one of the ways that we do that is through our gospel communities, where we gather together throughout the week to cultivate our joy in Jesus together, where we get to enjoy Jesus and one another. And my plea for our gospel communities is to not become so insular that we forget the purpose of our community. The purpose of our community isn't just for us. We exist so that we can proclaim Jesus to the world. Remember what Peter says, you have been called out of what? Darkness into what? Light, why? To proclaim his glorious excellencies to the world. I don't, I don't want us to become groups that are indifferent to those who are different. I don't want groups that care more about hangs and vibes rather than waking up to the reality that we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. My vision for our gospel communities is that we would be places where we are known deeply and deeply loved and deeply accepted and know others for the sake of holiness, for the sake of participating in the mission of God. I want our gospel communities to be marked by joy and love and to allow that joy and love to pulsate, to radiate outwards in justice and mission and evangelism. That's my desire and that's where we will be going for the rest of the time that the good Lord gives us together as a church until we dissolve until we lock the doors. I don't know if this is gonna continue after I die or if God's just gonna decide to do other things. Whatever God's plan is, that is what we will be doing. And we need you, we need you to get in the game, to put on the armor of God and fight with us. And maybe the first move that we make here today is to pledge allegiance to Jesus for the first time. Or maybe you've walked away from church or Jesus altogether after walking with him for some time. And we want to receive you with open arms. It's no mistake that you're here, and it's no mistake that you're either listening or watching later on. And your first step may be to receive the gift of free pardon, of free grace. And the Bible promises us, listen, the Bible promises us that when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is king, you will be saved. And for those who call Southwest home, my prayer, my desire, is that mission would not be a burden for you. That we would chase joy, that we would chase true joy, joy in knowing that every sin that you have ever committed, every single one that you will ever commit has been nailed to Calvary. Joy in knowing that you are a daughter of the King. I wanna to speak to the ladies here for a moment. Joy in knowing that when God sees you and he sees you always, he calls you the apple of his eye. 
you in your waywardness, in your awkwardness, in your dysfunction. He sees you and he desires better things for you. He calls you a queen of the earth. He wants better things for you. He wants you to know your worth and not to let men bring you down to their perverse measures of what they think you're worth. He wants you to know your beauty, that it doesn't come from without, but it comes from within, from a heart of contentment and peace. He wants you to know that you are not what others say about you. He wants you to know that you are not what you own or what you wear, that you can give up the addiction to storing up things in order to make yourself feel better. He wants you to know that you don't need a man to complete you, that you're not incompetent, you're not incomplete, you're not less than. He wants you to know that you are beautiful, not because you fit into the cultural, current beauty standards of this world, but because he has made you beautiful in his time as you reflect him. He wants you to pursue holiness and wholeness in him and quit the silliness of trying to construct an identity for yourself. He wants you to know that every sin, every temptation, every twisted desire is a faint, a cancerous, a small, anemic, a feeble attempt at what he is promising you. He wants you to know that you are his forever and you don't need to look to, you don't need to go to anything else to find your true worth, your contentment, and your joy. And he wants you to do something with that knowledge. He doesn't want you just to be, uh, to, to receive the knowledge. He wants you to be a conduit of that word, to give that word to another, to allow your life to be a sermon that I will never be able to preach. He wants you to do something with that. And so as we begin to enjoy the salvation of the Lord, sorry brothers, I don't have a specific word for you. You're beautiful too. But as we begin to love one another practically, as we begin to enjoy Jesus, may the world see something so different in us. May we run to our friends and our enemies and tell them all that the Lord has done for us. And may many flood these doors and the doors of all the churches in this city, realizing, realizing in the end, they thought they were looking for Jesus but Jesus was on their tail. Jesus was the one pursuing them the whole time. And I've gone over time here, but let me close with this saying that I love you, church, and I want the best for you. And I believe that the best is yet to come in our story. And as the band comes up, I wanna pray. I wanna pray that we will get after this with everything we have and we will ride this thing until the wheels fall off because everything we want, he has supplied. Everything we need has been given to us in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Mm, you're good. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that today we don't need to prove ourselves. We'll save that for another day. But even as tomorrow encroaches upon us, as we go to work, as we take care of our kids, as we work in the community, as we volunteer, there are going to be so many opportunities, so many voices, so many voices 
that will try to get us to prove ourselves, to prove our worth, to prove that we are worth it, to prove that our existence matters. But the gospel says that in Christ, our worth is gifted to us. We have been made in the image of the living God and we are being remade in the image of his son. And so we don't need to prove ourselves. There is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of Christ. And I pray now that this church, that those before me, that these behind me, that we will know without the shadow of a doubt that we are loved, that we will hear the voice of heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I delight. May we stop chasing identity. Stop chasing what others may think of us. Stop chasing what we think of us. And know and rest in the reality that we are enjoyed by God. That we ourselves bring you delight in our sin, in our waywardness. You care for us and you call us ever evermore to come home. And so may we find our rest in you, Jesus, and may we find rest in that. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.